Joe Wolfon, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? There will be no ultimate frisbee questions, so please relax. Well, thank you. Yeah, I was uh, all the muscles in my back were tensed up, just waiting for you to put me on the spot. Um, no, you, you and you and Will grilled me pretty good, man, on your last episode. No, it was great. Um, I just I felt wanna, like, like I, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to come off like I was apologetic for this shit. I really wasn't. Oh, here he goes again, being all defensive. Um, here he goes again, unprompted. Uh, no, I, I think it was just funny. I didn't realize it in the moment, but when I listened back to our episode, and especially after Will pointed it out, it did really feel like I had you boxed in and I was just interrogating you. Um, and, you know, I was just unraveling uh, these different layers about you, but uh, I'm glad you did it. I hope it was uh, therapeutic for you. Yeah, it was for sure. And so I think you know, I, I didn't think you're trying to box me in either. I think it's just, it was an interesting exercise because it's kind of stuff that I don't really get asked about a lot. Like I, I kind of just go about my life and like what I like. And for the most part, you know, people just accept that and don't like try to interrogate my likes or dislikes. Uh, and, you know, I don't really interrogate those things either. So, you know, for me, it was educational because uh, I, I actually had to like think about this stuff on a, on a deeper than surface level and figure out why I actually like them. Um, and not just yeah. why I like them as me, but like why I like them as a white person. Um, so there are, you know, questions of identity and and such kind of bound up in all that. So um, I definitely had a good time. Yeah, no, being a white person in 2020 is so interesting. Uh, I still wouldn't want to be white, but I'm a little <laughs> bit fascinated at the moment. Uh, did you uh, rip the ski lift tickets, uh, chairlift tickets off your jackets after we chatted? I had to, man. It was just, they'd been sitting there for so long. I'd worn them as badges of honor, but suddenly I was looking at them in a new light, you know? Badges of shame. Scarlet letters on my on my snowboard jacket. I love it, man. Um, and I just want to publicly say uh, that I've been enjoying Pound the Rock a lot. I've been enjoying Pound the Rock, you know, for years, but especially during the pandemic, uh, you and, you know, our mutual friend, Joseph Cacharo, uh, have been doing great work and pound the rock is my favorite nba podcast i'm just gonna put it out there that's crazy man um i really appreciate that i know like you you've always been an extremely loyal listener and you make a point of telling me all the time that you've been enjoying it and every time i i'm wholly appreciative and i think i don't know man it's tough to like keep putting out a weekly nba podcast while all this stuff's going on especially because like I've made my stance pretty clear about <laughs> my feelings on, you know, the NBA trying to come back. Um, and uh, I, you know, I have sort of said from the beginning, first I said basically that I didn't think it was going to happen. And then when it became more and more clear that it was going to happen, I've kind of just taken the side that uh, I hope they can do it safely, but I don't really think that it's a good idea uh, for a lot of different reasons. So it's tough to kind of juggle those things because on the one hand, we have to sort of talk about things in practical terms, like what it's going to look like, how certain players and teams are going to perform. And then on the other hand, being like, yeah, but also it's a terrible idea. And I don't know that they're actually going to be able to get to the end of this thing. So it's a bit of a juggling act, but, um, you know, we do our best and we're thankful to have loyal listeners like you. Yeah, no, first time, long time. That's me, definitely. And I'm glad you brought up um, this kind of struggle with sports coming back, but also knowing what's happening with the world and, you know, specifically in the U.S. with the pandemic at the moment, because uh, you wrote this great piece um, about how there's no need to pretend 
sports will save us all right now. And I wanted to read an excerpt uh, from this and talk to you about it. Um, and, you know, generally I just scroll to the end of the piece. So here's the last two paragraphs. Um, it may be that pro sports in North America come back and stay back, that those returns result in minimal additional infections and that a wide spectrum of viewers take great joy and comfort in the spectacle. But that scenario, should it come to pass, will be less a triumph of sporting institutions and their healing power than an illustration of how a population can be kept safe so long as it has enough resources, willpower, and financial incentive. One way or another, sports is not our missing ingredient in beating this virus. Empathy is. And the former won't amount to anything without the latter. I thought that really summed up kind of what everybody is trying to express with their mixed feelings about sports coming back. So I guess you are in disagreement, Joe Wolfon, with Adam Silver that sports will heal us all. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of think that Adam Silver is probably in disagreement with Adam Silver about that. Like, I understand the public posturing, but I think deep down he knows why they're doing this. And that if there wasn't this massive financial incentive, both for the league and its players, that uh, this wouldn't even be a conversation. So I think, you know, he has to peddle the message that he has to peddle. And I do think, you know, there is some truth to the fact that sports matter a lot to a lot of people. And it's not like, uh, you know, people are obviously going to care about sports' attempts to come back more so than they are just like any other basic industry or corporation you know like there's there's a greater public interest in sports than there is in most other uh, businesses so there's some truth to it but i just think it's really disingenuous to paint that as the reason they're trying to come back you know and like frame it as some sort of like a social service or a public good that they're doing when in reality it's like everybody's uh, to a certain extent i think looking out for their own interests and that's fine you know like it's fine for the players to want to look out for their own interests and and to want to get paid and to be concerned about, you know, what sitting out might mean for like the future of the current or future CBA, like, um, you know, there, there's a lot at stake and there are a lot of different factors in play. And I don't, I don't judge anybody for coming down on one side of the debate or the other. I just think it's important, you know, and felt it was important enough to write that piece just to recognize and point out what's actually going on here. Um, and, uh, I think Adam Silver deep down probably knows that too. No, I think definitely. And, but he still shouldn't have said that publicly. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, what's been really disappointing to me is just seeing how an issue that ought to be as like collectively, like it should be a matter of like collective concern and there should be a sense of common cause and, and like even something like a pandemic that really does affect all of us has somehow become politicized. And like, I try, I try not to put too much stock in like the comments that I receive on the articles that I write, but you know, there was a lot of blowback uh, in the comment section on the app about that story. And so much of it focused on it being like political and people wanting to keep politics out of sports. And I just don't really see this as being a political issue. Like, at least it shouldn't be like, I guess it's become that, but like, how are you going to politicize a pandemic? Well, I'll, I'll show you how, um, you know, the wearing a mask has been politicized and, you know, I can't say that I'm surprised that it has come to that, but I am still very disappointed that like, that's where we're come to. Like, this is just a matter of public health and safety and just a matter of not dying or having long-term effects from getting a virus. Um, so yeah, all of that is, 
really disappointing. I will say I've never felt more secure, uh, you know, knowing that I didn't know how secure of a person I was that I could just go out and wear masks and not feel insecure about it. You know what I'm saying? Like wearing a mask has really, uh, you know, empowered me because I look around and I'm like, oh, all you people are so insecure and selfish and I'm judging every one of them all on King West. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that's that's good to know. Uh, I think it's and I think in a weird way, like the politicization of it has like, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a sense of superiority. Like I would like to think that I'm not out, out there, you know, wearing my mask and, and looking at the people who aren't wearing them and looking down on them and feeling a, a sense of moral superiority. But like, I kind of am at the same time. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I, I, I totally am. And I don't know, man, it's just, it's just so disappointing. And it just goes back to my point that like, there's so many idiots in this world and this, there's no better time than now to start acknowledging that people are dumb and they should be called out for it because it's dangerous. First of all, uh, what some people are doing. Absolutely. Um, and like to that point, and obviously, you know, I, I touched on this in that piece that I wrote, but like, uh, it's been really disheartening for me to see, like the disgraceful behavior in the tennis world in particular. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't, 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 oh, don't worry. We're getting to Novak Djokovic right now, bro. Uh, first of all, um, so how is this going to color his legacy? Because listen, we know uh, how great uh, he's he is as, as a tennis player, but his reckless behavior, this has to like taint his legacy a little. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think, look... Public sentiment generally has not been particularly kind to Novak Djokovic over the years. And I think in a lot of cases that wasn't fair. Like he was he was sort of measured unfavorably and unfairly against Federer and Nadal. Uh, he was never as popular as those guys were. He was always seen kind of as an interloper. People thought he was a bit of a punk. And, and like I think... You, you know, that, like, I, I understand that that's graded on him over the years. He's really had this intense desire to be liked. And I think his attempts to, um, to, to earn, like, the public trust and the public love has almost made people dislike him even more. Uh, and, like, Nick Kyrgios gave this, this really illuminating interview. I can't remember if it was last year or two years ago where he was talking about this and just talking about how cringeworthy it was when... Uh, when Djokovic was making these like really naked attempts to just sort of win over the public and to, to paint himself as being like a Federer type of guy, um, as opposed to just leaning into being who he was and, and being genuine. I think people sort of saw through a lot of the artifice. And I, I like, that's something that I've understood and I've actually sort of empathized with him over the years. But like, I think he is just wholly deserving of the criticism that he's receiving right now. I can't say really how it's going to taint his legacy, but like this, you know, his disregard for the warnings of, of scientists and public health experts, uh, his putting on, you know, this, this charity tour without social distancing with fans in the stands. Um, and also like that's bound up in this broader pattern of like his, his buy-in to pseudoscience. And like he's had, these um, Instagram live chats with like crack scientists basically talking about how you can like purify water with positive thoughts. Like he, he talked about how 
you know, if there was ever a vaccine and that was required of players in order to get the ATP tour back up and running again, that he wouldn't be in favor of that because he doesn't believe in vaccines. Like there's a lot of really questionable stuff, I think, that have sort of turned people off of him, uh, you know, people who weren't already turned off of him. Like I've kind of been, um, I guess, more of a Djokovic centrist over the years. Like I've supported him at points. And I think the sort of overall negative perception of him has made me want to defend him at points, but I don't think there's any defending the way that he has behaved over the past few weeks. Yeah, you know, I think obviously with athletes, like with him specifically, it's not like you're going to take away anything he's accomplished off the court, like the grand slams that he's won, all of that stuff. But it's like it's like with Tom Brady, right? Like when you see like the Make America Great Again hat in his locker, or when you see him like posting on Instagram being like fear, the only fear is fear itself. Um, like it does color the way you look at these people. Um, and you know, I always knew something suspicious, uh, you know, was up with Djokovic after, you know, his partnership with Uniqlo didn't work out and they had to, they had to bring in, uh, Roger Federer, the goat. Um, so, you know, I've had my suspicions on Djokovic for a while, a deep tennis cut for you. Has anyone written a story about Marat Safin's, uh, 2000, uh, us open win? Cause that's the last time I remember watching tennis. <laughs> I'm sure somebody has like that was actually even like predated my own tennis fandom. Um, so and like that was kind of I think that scene is really like a competitive dead zone for the sport because it was basically that was like the early 2000s were the end of Sampras like Agassi was around for a few more years, but he was at the tail end of his career. And it was before Federer and Nadal came up. So it was kind of this weird fallow period where guys like Safin and Leighton Hewitt were were winning the big titles and um so I don't know if there there are a lot of people who have fond memories of that era of men's tennis um and I don't know if anybody's written about it I like I would be interested to read it because like I said I I, I wasn't really there watching and experiencing it for myself so if you want to write the definitive piece on Murat Safin's 2000 US <laughs> Open win I would gobble it up all right, let me add that and uh, the oral history of Michael Chang's career to my to-do list. Um, shout out to Michael Chang. All right, let's get some of the to... biggest calves in the game. Oh yeah, the biggest calves next to Vivek Jacob. Um, <laughs> so let's get to basketball. So basketball is coming back. Um, I guess we already gauged the level of excitement. I mean, there is a part of you that is excited to see what this is gonna be like, right? So that's the thing. Like, I, I excitement is just like not something that I'm feeling about this right now. And I'm not saying that I that won't change. Like, I think as we get closer and maybe we start seeing footage of like these exhibition games that they're gonna play before the real games actually start, um, I, like I'll I'll start to feel that excitement again. And it's almost like like a, a muscle, I guess, that I haven't worked in a while, like writing about actual basketball, because I've spent so much of the last, what is it, like four months now, um, just kind of doing retrospectives or, you know, filling space, but not necessarily writing the kind of stuff that I would normally write when there's actual basketball being played. So I think ultimately, you know, my opinion toward it will change. It'll start to feel normal and I'll get back into that rhythm. But I think for right now, it just feels, it still feels so hypothetical to me that I, I haven't really allowed myself to feel excitement about it. Yeah. I will say I've been just rejuvenated this week, just talking to people like yourself right now 
about basketball. Cause like you said, I think it's just, we've been doing, we've been finding different ways to like cover sports during the last few months. And so much of it has been uh, retrospectives and looking back. Um, I forgot what it was like to like actually look ahead and look forward to things, but I don't know. You're right though. Like, even though everything is inching so close to starting now, they just all feel like dates on a calendar right now. Yeah. I'm almost like, I'll believe it when I see it. Like even seeing the photos yesterday of like the Orlando magic arriving, uh, by the way, most likely team to break the bubble. Cause I think they just all live 10 minutes away. <laughs> um, and, and like seeing the food, which I thought was hilarious too. I actually, can we talk about the food for a second? What's your food take uh, on the NBA bubble? <laughs> Well, I keep hearing different things, right? Like, the, obviously, it was Troy Daniels post that photo of, like, what looked like an airline meal and not even a particularly Spirit, good... Spirit Airlines, by the way, <laughs> specifically, yeah. Um, and so everyone's kind of getting fire Festival vibes from that picture. <laughs> but then there's other people saying, like, okay, well, you know, everyone's got to quarantine in their room for, like, 36 to 48 hours, and during that time, they're going to be getting these kind of tray meals. But after that... Uh, they'll, you know, they'll be getting better food and um, essentially like people coming out and saying like, relax, it's not a big deal. Uh, but then seemingly like LeBron and his teammates were actually like getting fine gourmet meals. So maybe there, <laughs> there's like some sort of hierarchy it. inside this bubble already. <laughs> no, I, I think like 70% of it is just getting jokes off. Like I'm sure... The players, um, you know, I, I believe Mark Stein reported that after their initial quarantine, those are not the meals that they're going to eat. And, you know, to the point about LeBron's chef, I mean, if he's not demanding a $30 million extension right now, um, he's not playing the market right. Because I think he's got like a 48-hour period right now uh, where he can solicit a lot of offers Um from people in the bubble. And, and the other thing I love too, is there were some media members that pushed back uh, as we were getting jokes off. And, and we're basically saying that, you know, you guys are all making fun of this food. Like you don't eat that trash media meal at the arena um, all the time. And I'm like, you, and I'm like, you guys acting like you don't know life of luxury that these players live. Like, this is not what they're accustomed to. And I'm sorry if it, you know, makes them obviously uh, seem kind of disconnected, uh, from the rest of the world, but this is just not the level of standard uh, in terms of food that they're treated with on a day to day basis. If you had a chance in the bubble as a player, um, you know, you get a food reward if you make it to the NBA finals. Uh, what's the meal that you're requesting? So it's just like, it's like one meal, or it's like one meal that I'm going to be able to get over and over and over again? No, you only got that one meal and then it's back to Spirit Airlines. So you have to make this one count. And obviously, uh, anything is possible, like any kind of food from uh, any restaurant that you would like. Um, man. Uh, okay. I feel like I got to uh, I got to like, take some time to, to think about that. Can we, can we circle back to this at the end of the episode? Because oh, oh, you want to put a pin on this? Um. <laughs> We can put a pin on this. Um, what was I going to say? I would request a just, I'll be, I'll be simple. Just Swiss chalet, you know, just give me a quarter chicken meal. I just want to feel that great Swiss chalet sauce uh, in my mouth. Uh, Swiss chalet is a very divisive topic apparently. So I just want to pledge my allegiance yeah. uh, to the Swiss chalet sauce. Okay. I mean, I, I feel like you probably wouldn't have to wait to the finals to get some special Swiss chalet <laughs> order. Like, I'm sure if you wanted that, you get it anytime you want it inside the bubble. 
<laughs> Yo, you you think uh, you ask uh, Chris Chioza or whatever that made up player is on on the Brooklyn Nets? <laughs> the Brooklyn Nets have a roster of just nine players that I need to actually look up to make sure they're not made up by Tim Reynolds of the AP because oh, he man. tweeted out their whole roster yesterday, and I'm like, this can't be real, man. I, it's that race for the eight seed race. You know, I'm putting that in quotation marks. Like that race for the eight seed in the Eastern Conference is going to be. Oh boy, um, I it's it, I think it's entirely possible that neither the Wizards nor the Nets win a single. Well, I think they play each other once, so one of them's going to have to win a game. But apart from that, I feel like they might just lose out. Well, here's the thing. I mean, we've talked about obviously the financial reasons of why uh, the bubble and and the NBA is happening, and the financial reasons of why there are 22 teams. And you're watching all these players drop out now uh, because of injuries, because of personal reasons, and because they're testing positive for COVID. And for me, I mean, if I'm looking at the East, the bubble should have just been Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston automatically advanced to the second round. And then Miami, Philadelphia, and your Indiana Pacers um, fight for the fourth spot. And that's it. And then we just go to the second round. Like, that should be it. That should be the play-in tournament. Like you said, nobody's trying to watch this dramatic battle between Brooklyn, Orlando, and Washington. Yeah, I think it's it's just... I mean, again, like, we, we don't have to dance around the reason why those teams are there. Like, it's pretty blatant. The NBA is, like, trying to fulfill uh, 22 of their local TV contracts by getting those teams to, like, the 70-game threshold. And... Uh, you know, honestly, that makes a certain measure of sense. Like if they're going to go to all the expense to create this bubble, which I can't remember who it was who reported on like how much it's actually going to cost the league. But, you know, it's it's expensive even just to like try and put this thing on. So it, to make it worth their while, they almost had to like recoup a significant amount of that TV money. But in practical terms, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and my expectation the entire time was if, if the league did come back, like as they were sort of talking behind the scenes about plans and how they were going to make it work, like I really just expected they were going to go straight to the playoffs. Like that was the only way it made sense in my head. Um, and, and especially now that like these teams are recognizing, you know, (laughs) the Wizards and Nets, especially that there's just no reason for them to go, that they don't really have anything to play for. Um, it's, it's just going to be that much more stark how ridiculous it is that some of these teams are there. Yeah, you know, I did ask James Herbert earlier this week, uh, if you got a chance to be one of the 10 reporters to go to the bubble to cover this, would you go? I don't think so. Like, and and maybe that's just because of how I have covered the league in my sort of brief time as an NBA writer. But like, I just, like, I've written some stories that involve access and like some reported features, but for the most part, like my coverage doesn't really rely on access. And a lot of the time, I don't feel like I get that much out of being there in person. Um, It's nice to be able to talk to players. And like, if you have a specific question that really only they can answer or provide insight on, then it it can obviously be really beneficial. But I think a lot of the time... um, you know, you, you can see just as much, like you can have just as much perspective writing about the game itself, watching it on TV as you can 
being there in person and just to jump through all the hoops and, and to be isolated from friends and family for that long. I, I don't think that I would really have much interest in doing that. Even, you know, if you were, it is like very exclusive, right? And I guess there's something to be said for being one of the 10 media members who's there and gets to have the kind of access that nobody else does. But the whole thing, I guess, just doesn't really interest me that much. Yeah, I found very few people who have, who I've asked this question who have said yes to going and, and really for the same reasons. Um, I think if I were offered it, I would lock down a book deal, first of all. Uh, you know, just, let, just cool. let them know, you know, I'm one of the first 10 people that are doing it. And um, See, like that's, I, I don't have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, man. Like, <laughs> you just want to play tennis and avoid any news about Novak Djokovic at this point. This is just your life now in, in 2020. Is this, is this what you're saying, Joe Wolfon? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, yeah, got to bury my head in the sand. <laughs> Yo, the only fear is fear itself, bro. Don't ever forget that. Um, so, I actually wanted to, um, you know, revisit. Speaking of retrospectives and going back, I wanted to revisit the Raptors Sixers game from late November of this season. Um, you know, the one that everyone is familiar with when Joel Embiid scored zero points. And as you can tell, we're almost half an hour into the podcast, and I still haven't brought it up because I really have nothing to add except for like three uh, jokes that I'm trying to get off. Um, so, anyways, let's talk. I-, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the Sixers first of all because you know they're getting this like quote unquote fresh start at Disney World, and I'm sure you saw yesterday Joel Embiid made some comments about how you know they should run the offense through him at Disney World, which I completely agree with. Um, See, so I'm going to ask you this about the Sixers. Um, do you think they're still an interesting team? Because I feel like they were such an interesting team, like during the process and during the whole, you know, when Embiid and Simmons were, were coming up together. And obviously there was all that Markel Fultz drama. Um, now I feel like we kind of know a lot about them and we know about the flaws of Ben Simmons. You know, we know what kind of player Embiid is. Do you still find them to be like a fascinating team to watch and follow? Yeah, I do. I, I think what's like they're interesting just because everybody kind of knows that the talent is there like Ben Simmons is flawed but he's undeniably an extremely talented player and Bede is so talented um and I think you know a lot of the, the questions and concerns about him are just about durability and and his conditioning and like whether he's going to be able to hold up over the long haul um but I also think that they're just so fascinating because they keep reinventing themselves like every few months really and so like you're kind of always just getting a different iteration of the team and so a couple of years back there was like the the Simmons and Embiid core and uh Covington and Saric were there and Fultz was there trying to figure out where he fit in and then you know they make the move for Jimmy Butler and uh then Butler and Redick are gone and Horford and Tobias Harris and Josh Richardson are there like and, and at the center of it all is like Embiid and Simmons still, and we're all kind of trying to figure out whether, like, is the problem that those two guys can't fit together, or is the problem that the the team just hasn't quite found the right balance of players around them uh, in order to maximize the two of them together? So, I think like every data point that we get, uh, and every different kind of team that the front office puts around those two guys. Uh, illuminates things just like a little bit more. And so I definitely, I I find it to be almost like an interesting experiment. Like if, 
like, should we applaud them for just trying so many different things or should we deride them for like not sticking with one thing and actually trying to like see it through rather than just like moving the pieces around like a Rubik's cube every few months and, and not having any consistency. Yeah. You know, that last point is interesting. And, you know, obviously they didn't get out of the second round last year and, you know, Jimmy Butler and JJ Redick left and they brought in Al Horford and, you know, traded for Josh Richardson I felt like they had something with that core last year, like even though the Raptors beat them. Um, I would have loved to just seen them come back with Jimmy Butler and J.J. Redick. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they were better built last year than this year. And obviously, like, the losing Butler gets so much of the attention because he really did become their primary ball handler in the playoffs. And that's something that I think they really missed this year, just like somebody who can initiate the offense in the half court. Um, but I really think that like losing Redick hurt them so much, man, because so much of their offense was built around just like the Embiid Redick two man game. And in the game that we're about to talk about against the Raptors, like you can really see that how the Raptors are just like swarming Embiid all game. They're throwing double teams at him. Um, and, and it's like, he's trying to get these dribble handoffs off with these other guys like Richardson and, and Tobias Harris, like the Raptors defended those actions really well, but like Redick was so important. I think to just like pulling attention away from Embiid, opening the court up for him because he, he like moves so well off the ball, has so much gravity as a shooter. And anytime say like if a defender wanted to sag off of Embiid, it's like they could pivot into that dribble handoff and suddenly Redick would have space. So you kind of had to play up on Embiid. It made it harder to send double teams at him. Um, and I just, like, they don't have anybody who can replicate what he gave them. Um, and, uh, and like, I remember, actually, before before this game, when Embiid wound up with zero points, like, I was at the, the Sixers shoot-around this, uh, that morning and, like, asked Brett Brown about, like, about how he was trying to replace Redick and he was like, I'm not like, we don't have anybody who can do that. There's dust all over my JJ Redick playbook. And we're just a completely different team uh, with completely different skills and a completely different offense than we were last year. And I think that's been kind of underrated facet of all this is just like how much losing Redick changed uh, what they were and are as a team. Yeah. So this game that we're going to get into, uh, this was a Sixers first game back in Toronto, the first matchup between the two teams since Kawhi's Game 7 shot. Um, coming in, the Raptors were 11-4, and four, uh, undefeated at home up to this point. The Sixers were 11-5, and five, so pretty early in the season. And for the Raptors, uh, no Kyle Lowry, and I want to say no Pat McCaw, and Matt Thomas as well. Uh, you know he has to get a mention um, <laughs> on the injury list. So it was Van Fleet, Powell, OG, Pascal, and Mark. Yeah, no Ibaka uh, either. Oh, that's right. No, Serge. I uh, really apologize. He was probably uh, filming a YouTube video. No, he was injured. Um, uh, the Sixers were pretty much healthy. Uh, ben Simmons, Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris, Al Horford, Joel Embiid. Um, I'm officially rebranding this as a game where Rondé Hollis Jefferson outscored Joel Embiid 16 to nothing, by the way. Um, really enjoyed uh, watching. I miss watching Rondé Hollis Jefferson just coming in with his like skittish uncut gems energy. Um, and never finding a straight path to the basket, um, never takes the easy way out when when he's around the basket. Um, I really miss watching a lot of these Raptors bench guys. That was like one of the things that jumped out to me. Yeah, I mean, this was 
like obviously Gasol gets the lion's share of the credit for holding Embiid scoreless in this game and deservedly so. But like this was really like an incredible team effort, uh, especially at the defensive end. And yeah, I mean, amazing minutes off the bench for Rondé in this game. Um, and uh, and Terrence Davis had a nice game off the bench as well. Boucher coming in just like for a few spot minutes and creating chaos. Um, and it is nice to be reminded, like, it's so weird because it, it's just weird to think about like the season that's about to restart being the same season that, you know, was being played back in the fall. Like by the time, by the time the season ends, it'll be a full year that's passed since the start of the season. Um, so it's just weird to think that like, this is actually the same season that's going on, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was nice to be reminded of just like that bench's hyperactivity. Like they just come in and create chaos and they thrive in that chaos. And uh, Rondé and Boucher, I think in particular, just really thrive in chaos. Um, like Rondé just like puts like, none of his drives to the rim look natural. He looks totally out of control. It never seems like he's actually going to be able to finish. Uh, and then somehow, some way he does. Yeah, this was uh, in the midst of the best stretch of the season, I think, for Rondé, which started on that road trip when Kyle and Serge got hurt. And, you know, Rondé um, came in, it was like the primary defender against Kawhi for most of that Clippers game. Um, basically, Nick Nurse scared the shit out of Rondé and Stanley Johnson in training camp, and only one of them responded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I don't... I'm sure Stanley Johnson would have responded if he could have. I think it's more a question of capability than will. Uh, and I think ultimately Rondé is just like a better player than Stanley Johnson is. Um, and so obviously, and, and it honestly took those injuries for Nurse to even show any trust in Rondé. Like he dusted him off, I think in that Lakers game. Uh, right? Like, that was the first time that he'd even appeared. He'd been just, like, riding the pine before that, and he came out and had an amazing game, like, spent a lot of time guarding LeBron and has been a mainstay in the rotation ever since then. Yeah, well, it's been this long that at the start of the season, the main concern was the Raptors had seven guys, right? Like, I'm sure you remember, like, uh, on opening night and early in the season. Uh, And, I mean, I guess throughout the season, the starters were still playing a lot of minutes, and the only rest, unfortunately, they got was whenever they were injured. Um, But... And then you fast forward to kind of where the Raptors are now and they're suddenly like 10 deep again uh, because of all the guys off the bench. And don't disrespect Stanley Johnson, all right? He's uh, 24 years old and you've seen what I've done with Matt Thomas's PR. Um, we're going to rebrand Stanley Johnson as the most promising prospect on the Raptors. Uh, just watch. His calves are up there with Michael Chang's too. That guy's got huge calves. So, <laughs> Yeah, so the top three calves rankings, uh, I guess let's just get this out of the way. Uh, number one, Michael Chang. <laughs> Uh, because if you say anything else, you're anti-Asian. Uh, number two, uh, Vivek Jacob. And number three, Stanley Johnson. Are you okay with those rankings? I don't think I've seen Vivek's calves. Does he have enormous <laughs> calves? Like, he doesn't look like right. the type. Uh, we're going to start a group chat uh, with Vivek and, you know, put this uh, put this discussion to the forefront. Um, so uh, what else from this game? Okay, so let's go through this. So one of the funniest things I thought was uh, early in the game. So Fred, everybody knows now the playoff stats, one for 14 uh, from three in the seven game series against the Sixers. In this game, he has 24 points, uh, which I'm just going to go ahead and say that's more than he scored in the entire series. 
against the Sixers, and he was three for six from three. So he hits a three less than a minute into this game. And Leo Rounds' explanation for this uh, change in Fred and why he's able to score uh, on the Sixers now is because he's a champion now. Um, so jo- Joe Wolfon, can you please explain to me, beyond the fact that he's a champion now, did you see anything different or did you see anything different from Fred's overall game this year in terms of maybe a better ability to finish? And obviously, I think he did expand his range from three a little bit to give himself a little spacing. Yeah, I think definitely expanding the range was a, a huge one. Um, shooting off the dribble, he was way better than he's been in the past when he was just kind of like, couldn't really shoot off the dribble that well at all, actually, and was like way more effective shooting off the catch. Um, but we started to see really in like the finals was when he busted out as like a pull-up three-point shooter, um, like particularly in that game six. And that carried over to this year where like he he's actually been a really, really solid pull-up three-point shooter. So I think that was huge. His, his finishing got maybe a little bit better, but that's still an area of struggle for him, which is understandable because he's super small. And uh, unlike Kyle Lowry, he doesn't he doesn't have that same kind of, um, we'll call it lower body strength, I guess, where, where you can kind of like put a defender on your hip and just create separation with your lower body. Uh, I think he got his shot blocked maybe more than anybody in the league uh, outside of maybe Colin Sexton. Um, but he was up there among, um, among like the players who got his shot blocked the most, um, which I mean, he's a small point guard. Like that's, I, I, it's just kind of bound to happen. Um, but I think, I think stretching out his range and, and just like getting more comfortable shooting off the dribble were the big things for him. And also just like getting more comfortable as a ball handler running pick and roll. I think his playmaking improved in that regard. He, wasn't over dribbling to the same extent, was able to make quicker decisions um, and was just like a little bit more decisive when it came to either driving the ball or passing it off to a role man. So what I'm taking away from that, it's it's because he won the championship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a shorter way of summarizing it would be to say he's a champion now and he can do all the things. <laughs> proving my point that I never listen to people who come on the podcast and, and talk. Um, but I guess for present day purposes, like, would you be worried or, or think that it's possible that he could have a series like he did last year against the Sixers? I mean, even in the playoffs last year, that was an outlier, right? Like it, it was just, and I understand like the Sixers size gave him a lot of problems and he, you know, most of the time it's like he, he was being defended by guys who are like six six or six seven. And I think like the improved handle is gonna help him in that regard because like he'll just be able to shake defenders like that, um, who will have a harder time staying in front of him. Whereas like last year I don't think he was quite at that level and it was just hard for him to shake those defenders. So to be able to get his shot off against a bigger defender was a lot more difficult. And I think, you know, the, the biggest reason that he struggled in that Sixers series was just um, they kind of overwhelmed him with their size. And so I don't think it would happen again to that same extent. I also just think he's, he just had a really cold shooting series. Uh, I think you mentioned it. He hit, I want to say he hit one, three in that series and maybe three field goals all together. <laughs> yeah, which is still just unbelievable whenever I see those graphics. Yeah. And it's just like, to go from that to what he became in the Bucks series and in the finals is like, 
he really went from like one of the absolute worst shooting stretches for any player ever to like one of the most like if if you look at like like the fact that the Raptors went on to win the championship in large part because of the shooting stretch that he had I mean that's got to go down as like one of the most impactful shooting stretches in NBA history yeah for sure you know let's just put it this way man while the Sixer series was happening Hubie Brown couldn't have imagined he was going to write down Fred Van Fleet as his NBA Finals MVP. Um, and, you know, man, if he had timed, and obviously he, he's not in control of this, but if he had timed his free agency where he hit free agency last summer, just imagine the money he would have gotten coming off that Finals. Yeah, well, I don't, I mean, like, I don't think he cost himself any money this season, I'll say that. Uh, the pandemic, the pandemic might have cost him, though. Well, we'll see. I mean, I guess it, it it's really just going to depend on whether he wants to take like a, you know, a short term bet on yourself type of deal where he can reenter the market when, you know, the financial picture of the league is going to be a lot clearer and presumably there's going to be a lot more money to be spent. Um, but I think, you know, if the Raptors are kind of negotiating with him in good faith and are willing to sort of offer him the same contract that they were going to be prepared to offer him anyway, I don't know that it'll matter all that much. And I think, I don't know. I feel like we, you know, not necessarily you and me, but like me and like a bunch of other Raptors fans and writers talked throughout the season about like what we pegged his value at. And I feel like we all sort of came in around, like we thought he was going to get something in the realm of a four-year deal worth between like 18 and $25 million a year. And I feel like that he still might get that from the raps. Like I think they'll do whatever they can to keep him around long-term while preserving that max cap space in 2021. Yeah. And I feel like people always just forget that like Fred's the same age as Pascal. I think just cause Fred like carries himself like a vet uh, a little bit more, but yeah, I- I'm with you, man. If they can get him back on like a 20 million a year deal, um, that would be great. Cause obviously want him part of the long-term core. Um, I have a bunch of other observations here too, about the game. Uh, anything for you that stood out? about this game that you remember? I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but just like the Raptors team defense, it was so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like this was, um, again, Gasol was incredible. And you you sort of saw like all the different ways that he gives Embiid problems and not a lot of bigs give Embiid problems, but Gasol actually has like the size and the strength to prevent him from getting really deep post position. Um, he also just has the smarts to like defend him without fouling. And Embiid is like so he's not so dependent on getting to the line, but like that's a huge part of his offensive game is just getting fouled over and over and over again. And he shoots like 10 free throws a game. Um, but he only shot three free throws in this one, obviously missed all of them. Um, and it's just entirely because of Mark's footwork, staying in front of him, using his hands incredibly well. But but like holding him to zero points was totally like a full team effort. Um, and, and part of that was like we talked about before the, the sort of weird construction of the Sixers team where they have a hard time spacing the floor around him. And you can see like when he's out there with Simmons and Simmons isn't handling the ball and he's hanging out in the dunker spot, it's like Embiid's trying to roll to the rim and whoever's guarding Simmons, a lot of time it was Pascal is just kind of like waiting for him in the lane. And also if like they ran a pick and roll with him, uh, there was like a defender pulled way off from the weak side to 
block his path. Like a lot of time that was OG guarding like uh, like James Ennis on the wing and just like not really paying attention to him. Like the whole game plan was basically we're, we're going to let everybody else try and beat us and we're just going to hone in on Embiid and not let him do anything or get into any kind of a, a rhythm or get comfortable at all. And they did an incredible job of just like helping and recovering out to shooters. They were swarming in with double teams. Even when he caught the ball, like 20, 25 feet from the hoop, they were sending double teams at him just to like really not let him get comfortable in the least. Um, and like Siakam in particular, I think was just like everywhere in this game. Um, and, and had, I think like as big a hand as Mark did in, in neutralizing Embiid because of just like the help and recover stuff. Um, so it was, yeah, it was nice to like go back and rewatch some of that stuff and just remember like how, how incredible defensively this team can be. Yeah. You know, on the broadcast, um, they said that the Raptors had just come off a game against the Hawks where they, it was the first time this season they had given up 50% plus shooting to, uh, their opponent. And, you know, in this game, they, they held the Sixers to 40%. Um, obviously, Embiid uh, had zero points. And, you know, I, I'm not saying anything new here, but, like, Mark is such just a joy to watch, um, you know, not just on defense. And, obviously, with Kyle out in this game, just him functioning a lot of times um, as, like, the facilitator or the point guard on the offensive end, too. Like, he's just such a smart, uh, brilliant player. And now he's got the quarantine glow up. So uh, I cannot wait to see uh, what happens at Disney World. And the Embiid zero points thing just got so absurd because he missed like what, two free throws in the first half. And then in the fourth quarter, uh, when they shoot the technical foul, they make Embiid shoot it and he misses it. And at that point, it just seems so absurd. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember the building being like incredibly loud when he was shooting that technical free throw too. Like everyone knew what was going on that he hadn't scored that the Sixers had probably asked him to shoot that free throw because he hadn't scored and they wanted to get him off the schneid. And, and so like the free throw defense from the fans that night, I think was pretty exceptional. Yeah. So that brings me to my absolute favorite sequence personally of the season. And that is, you know, Embiid misses the technical with eight minutes left in the fourth uh, with the Sixers up 87, 86. And then the Sixers get the ball back and Terrence Davis is called for a foul on Josh Richardson uh, as he attempts a three. And you can see on uh, the Jumbotron replay that, you know, Terrence Davis basically didn't even touch uh, Josh Richardson. And the fans are going mad, and Nick Nurse busts out one of his all-time Nick Nurse faces. Um, and he's furious. And I think he doesn't have a challenge at this point because he's probably wasted it because that's all Nick does with his coach's challenges. Uh, the crowd is so angry. And then Josh Richardson... Uh, 87% free throw shooter goes to the line and misses all three shots. I have honestly objectively never heard Scotiabank Arena as loud as that moment as he started missing each of those free throws. Yeah, definitely not in a regular season game. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely remember that as well. Just like how, especially in that fourth quarter, how loud the crowd was getting um, when the Sixers were at the free throw line. Uh, so yeah. And that has that sequence has to make uh, the eventual oral history of Ball Don't Lie. Um, whoever is going to write the story, um, actually, want to ask players like, do you actually believe in this Ball Don't Lie shit? Because you guys always talk about it uh, all the time. Um, other observations from the game. Uh, really glad. Actually, learned something rewatching this that James Ennis is no longer on the Sixers. Uh, he's on the Orlando Magic now. I don't know if you knew this, Joe Wolfon. Um, uh, I but... did, but I was also, I, I probably wouldn't have remembered if I hadn't listened to that pod that you did with James when you were playing who he played for. So, 
Yeah, like I've if, been exposed. If, I, I know I know more U2 songs than I do NBA players. Yeah. <laughs> Something to be ashamed of, man. Um, um, but yeah, James Ennis uh, hated him last year um, in the second round. Uh, really thought he was going to be the guy to somehow knock the Raptors out. And you know what? I guess the Raptors are going to see him in the first round. Most likely Orlando is going to be the seventh seed. Yeah, can't wait. Another series against the Magic. It's just uh, it's what we all wanted, right? Yeah, I swear, man, I will pay uh, a nominal sum to never have to watch Raptors Magic again uh, <laughs> under any scenario. Like, what? Tell me, Joel Fong, because I know you're a huge basketball fan. What excites you about a potential Raptors Magic first round matchup? So, if Jonathan Isaac is back healthy, he's absolutely awesome to watch, um, particularly at the defensive end. I think he's like one of the five best defensive players in the league. Um, and I think especially like the matchup of him against Pascal is just super interesting. Uh, and the different ways that the Raptors try and get Pascal going against them. Um, a lot of the time, like in their matchups this year, Nurse just kind of like had him work through some stuff and try and go one-on-one against Isaac. It really didn't go particularly well very often. Um, but when they introduced like some screening actions uh, to get other guys switched onto him or had plays that kind of got him on the move going to the basket, then he had a little bit more success. But I think um, that matchup between those two guys is a really fascinating one. So there you go. Wow. I I can't believe you actually, this guy has an answer for why the Orlando magic is interesting and not an answer for what meal he would order (laughs) if he made the conference finals. Uh, I just want to put that out there. Um, I mean, like having no answer to that is better than answering Swish LA, in my opinion. So I I think I'm still coming out ahead on that one, man. Wow. Okay. I'm calling, I'm calling the police. I'm being attacked by a white person on my own podcast right now about Swish LA. Um, So uh, crunch time, the Sixers are up 94, 88 um, with four and a half minutes to go. And some of these offensive possessions, and I mean, it reminded me a little bit of game seven, uh, of the of the second round series from last year, uh, some of these Sixers offensive possessions are just so ugly. Um, you know, there's one where Simmons I think passes to Embiid, who just like rushes and bricks a three, um, and then Embiid, uh, you know, OG draws a charge on Embiid because he's out of control driving to the basket. There's an Embiid turnover, um, you know, and on another play, OG locks down Ben Simmons, and then Josh Richardson misses a shot. Um, Tobias Harris misses a jumper towards the end. And obviously we know the final possession when Tobias Harris, um, misses a three and then Ben Simmons throws up this prayer from almost half court, even though there was time left on the clock. Um, do you think this tells us anything kind of big picture about the Sixers and just concerns you would have about their crunch time offense? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, the crunch time offense is going to be a struggle for them against elite defenses. I, I think the Raptors match up with them really well. Um, because like all year, you know, their offense was really just heavily predicated on post-ups, posting up MB, posting up Horford, posting up Tobias Harris, posting up Ben Simmons. And the Raptors are a really difficult team to post up. Like you can't really post up Marcus all like you can't post up OG. You can't post up Kyle Lowry for fuck's sake. So I think, you know, that forces them to try and find workarounds. And obviously that, that proved really difficult in this game. Um, Richardson actually, you know, apart from missing those three free throws, had a really good game uh, because of the Raptors game plan was like, you know, you saw they would run pick and roll with like Richardson and Embiid and 
Mark was like totally focused on taking away Embiid on the roll rather than really like bothering the shooter. So Richardson ended up hitting like a bunch of mid-range pull-up jumpers. They even went to like the Simmons Embiid pick and roll a couple of times, which is something they very rarely do um, just because, uh, you know, basically Mark would hang with Embiid on the roll and Simmons like a couple of times just like marched all the way to the rim to score. So I, I don't know, but without, without that, like as a kind of like reliable go-to down the stretch, like in the half court, they just, they, they don't have a way to like generate efficient offense against teams that they're not going to be able to reliably post up. Um, and so, yeah, like in a series against the Raptors, that would concern me if I was a Sixers fan for sure. Yeah. And I feel like that's, this is where they miss uh, a Jimmy Butler and a JJ Redick the most too. Um, on the Raptors side, I know their crunch time numbers have been actually really impressive this season, um, if I'm not mistaken. And, Unbelievable, yeah. You know, in this, um, you know, in this game, uh, I guess the the key play was Pascal getting that and one uh, three point play, driving to the basket uh, and facing the double team uh, to put the Raptors ahead. And you know, just overall from from watching the Raptors this season, and I think you agree with me. You know, obviously defense is their strength, and that's not going to be um, a concern in the playoffs. You know, the, the concern I think will come from maybe generating points uh, against an elite defense like a Milwaukee specifically. Um, do you have like a lot of concern about the the Raptors' offense? I guess what's like your concern level when it comes to if they're going to be able to generate enough offense in the playoffs against the top teams? Um, I'm concerned about it against the Bucks for a few specific reasons and not really that concerned about it against anybody else. Um, I think Milwaukee's scheme and their personnel can expose a couple of particular flaws that I think the Raptors offense has. But ultimately, I think the kind of the closer by committee worked out really well for them this year. And like their numbers in clutch were like way, way better this year than they were last year when pretty much all their late game sets were just ISOs for Kawhi. And there, there's like a benefit, I guess, to having just like a dominant isolation scorer where you can give them the ball and clear out. And like, that just allows you to control the clock. You can like run it down to basically zero and play for the last shot and, and have, you know, like a 45% chance of just winning the game at the buzzer but ultimately I think you're gonna have a more efficient offense when you're actually running stuff and getting everybody involved especially because like the Raptors have a lot of really smart players and a lot of high-end playmakers you know between Mark Kyle Pascal um, like these are guys who can all like get you a bucket hit a shot make a pass that's leading to a score Um, and, and putting that much playmaking on the floor like it's kind of going to waste, right? When you're just clearing out for one guy, being able to utilize everybody, I think makes it a lot more difficult for the defense to actually stop you uh, in crunch time. Cause I think in a lot of ways, as much as like you can control the clock by going ISO, you sort of bail the defense out because they know what's coming. Um, and it just makes it easier for them to plan for that scenario. Um, now maybe that like gets more difficult in the playoffs because um you know, defenses can start to key in on pet plays and certain guys maybe don't have the same level of confidence, you know, taking the last shot in a playoff game that they would in a regular season game. But 
the evidence this season definitely suggests that their crunch time offense is all kinds of fine. So you're saying you don't you wouldn't go with my plan of uh, just giving the ball to Norm and just having him ISO for crunch <laughs> time? I mean, look, if Norm has it going, it's not a bad option at all. Like uh, what that guy did this season is flat out ridiculous. Um, and there were certainly games where it's like, yeah, just give Norm the ball and let him cook because nobody can stop him right now. Uh, but I think for the most part, it's going to be more of like a, a democratic process uh, figuring out the late game offense with Pascal basically being the closest thing they have to like a go-to scorer down the stretch. Yeah, and I mean, all jokes aside, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Norm even sees the floor in some of these closing situations, right? Yeah, um, I think, you know, th- there might be like a lot of offense-defense substitutions where like OG is coming in for defensive possessions and Norm's coming in for offensive possessions. Um, and it, I think it'll also depend, like if they're trying to come back, you know, if they're down like three or four points, then maybe Norm's in there for offense. But if they're up three or four points and trying to protect the lead, then maybe OG is in there for defensive purposes. Um, to me, it's like, it, it would be pretty difficult to not close with OG just because I think he is their best defender. And... So I don't know. I don't know how they they kind of figure out that spot in the rotation. But I think um, regardless, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I like OG is still what he shot like 38 percent from three this season. So if if you end up in a situation where somebody gets double teamed and the ball gets swung around to OG because the defense is totally ignoring him and he's wide open, then I don't feel terrible about him being the guy to take that shot. Yeah, and OG was a pretty reliable playoff guy two years ago. Um, he obviously missed, um, you know, all of last postseason. So I'm really interested to see. I mean, he didn't back down, um, you know, in his first run, uh, you know, in in the NBA playoffs. And you know, obviously people remember him uh, for LeBron hitting that shot over him. But OG had a monster game in that game. Like the Raptors aren't even in that position without him. No, he was incredible that whole series, honestly, um, and against the Wizards. Like he. Of all the young guys, and I think it's it's easy to forget this now, but like going into that offseason, uh, before you know they get Kawhi, like him and Pascal were basically on the same level. And I think a lot of people might have even said that they would rather keep OG than Pascal. Like he was kind of the shinier prospect at the time. And obviously, you know, the, the talk was, well, which one of these guys is going to end up in a Kawhi trade? Or are we going to have to deal both of them to get Kawhi? And the fact that they wound up keeping both of them was just like literally a miracle. Um, but yeah, like after after what he did in the playoffs, when, you know, he did easily the best job of any Raptor guarding LeBron and obviously, you know, showed a sense of fearlessness, taking and hitting big shots as they mounted that comeback in game three, like... Uh, he absolutely destroyed the Wizards in the first round with his cutting along the baseline. He's a he's like a really good and really smart player. So I think, regardless of what Nick Nurse decides, you know, you know who's going to be in the closing lineup. I think it's probably going to be situational, but uh, I think I trust OG just a little bit more than I trust Norm. Norm's like again had a fantastic season, but it's just like a little bit more erratic and obviously prone to a lot more lapses at the defensive end. Yeah. Do you think when Jakob Pertl saw the Kawhi trade that he was surprised that that was it? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, though, when that Woj when that Woj text alert hit his phone, he must have been like, "Really? That's it?" <laughs> oh man. 
Um, yo, you know what? That would be a great thing for you to ask Jakob Pertle. <laughs> yeah, he would probably uh, just tell me to fuck off. Um, so to wrap up a few more uh, observations, uh, did you know that Raul Neto uh, is on the Sixers? Because uh, I didn't. Um, and also this win extended uh, the Raptors' regular season uh, home win streak against the Atlantic Division opponents to 32 games which dated back to December 2015. And to be honest, shouts to the Raptors, but the Atlantic division uh, has a lot of trash teams in them, um, you know, during those years. And I believe this streak actually ended on Christmas Day, I want to say. Yeah, When they lost to the Boston Celtics. Uh, But let's just put a heavy font 50 asterisks on that because the Raptors were injured. And also uh, Pat McCaw had a monster game against the Celtics like three nights later. So it doesn't count. The streak continues. And lastly, Drake and Meek Mill were both courtside for this game. Joe Wolfon, where do you rank Drake and Meek Mill on your all-time list of rappers? I don't. I mean, <laughs> okay, this is this is getting more interrogative than ultimate frisbee. But let's let's try to get through this. No, I mean, look, I've I've listened to far more Drake than I have Meek Mill. To be honest, I'm not like a huge hip hop head. Like I haven't been for for a long time, so I I feel like I'm not the right guy to be asking this. Yeah, I've never really listened to Meek Mill's music much, um, but I'm still gonna name this podcast episode "Dreams and Nightmares." Um, uh, Drake, I guess. I feel like if you're from Toronto, you just have to listen to Drake. Yeah, I mean, it totally like that's sort of how I felt about it. It almost felt like a responsibility that I had, and even if I like didn't go out of my way to listen to him on my own, it's like any party that you would go to, anytime you're hanging out with friends, you would inevitably, you know, stumble across a Drake song or two. Um, so, and like, look, yeah, there there are plenty of Drake songs that I do enjoy. So, um, I will essentially put him ahead of Meek Mill on my non-existent rankings just by default. Yeah, you told me that you really haven't listened to hip hop since uh, Cameron's Purple Haze. <laughs> yeah, I was exaggerating slightly, but um, but that was, I mean, aside from maybe like Kendrick uh, and on like early Kanye too, which which I. I mean, it, you know, we don't, we don't, yeah, we don't speak about, yeah, um, <laughs> current presidential candidate. Uh, no, no, but it's just no, yeah, um, yeah, but like, I, I don't know, I haven't like sort of gone all out listening to rap since like the mid 2000s, I feel, um, but I, I will always cape for Purple Haze, yeah, and you know, I did tell you off air that the last live show that i went to before the pandemic hit was a cameron show in toronto which you were a little bit surprised by well i just like yeah i mean how was it um i i always find like i guess i'm always just surprised when i hear that rappers who are like in their 40s or 50s are still touring which i shouldn't be like there's they're still musicians they're still putting out music they're still performing but um I, I guess for me, like I sort of always reach a point with artists where I just stop listening to their new stuff. Um, and like once, you know, once they make an album that I don't like and I just basically decide they're washed, I kind of just like stop listening to them. Um, like Bob Dylan, I think is a good example. Like I, I was like the biggest Bob Dylan fan when I was like in high school, listened to like all his early albums, like 60s, 70s, even like some of his 80s stuff. 
And I, like, I haven't listened to any of the music that he's put out in the last 20 years. He has an album out now that people are really raving about and I just won't ever listen to it. Um, but tell me about this Cameron show. Like, was he good? Yeah. So first of all, I can't believe you managed to bring up Bob Dylan in a Cameron conversation. This has to be a first. Um, yeah, it was a it was a really good show because you should tack uh, that on to the uh, to the stuff white people like episode. <laughs> yeah, let me amend the episode I did with you. I'm just going to throw in this audio. Um, no, the Cameron show was good. And like you talked about, like, I I mean, I had checked out his new album just for the sake of it. Uh, but you know, we all know like uh, Cameron's classics and he did a lot of his songs from, you know, his early albums. Like I still remember when Dipset Forever came on. I have all these videos on my phone. I was basically that dude that was just recording everything um, uh, while the whole thing was happening. It was at the Velvet Underground on Queen Street. Um, I went with uh, my Yahoo colleague, Ben. And the funniest thing was we were next to these two kids who were obviously like 15 years younger than me um and i don't know we had just started chatting they like bought us beers um and then every time an old cameron song came on one of the kids would look at me and be like yo you were alive when this shit came (laughs) out i'm like like, listen man you bought me like six budweiser's so i can't flame you but please stop making me feel like the oldest person in here literally every song he's like yo you were vibing with this when it came out, weren't you? I was like, yes. So yes, did, I was. Did they know who you were? Is that why they were buying you beers? Or they were just like felt no, bad for you because you they... were old? <laughs> Listen, um, now I feel like I'm being interrogated. I don't like this. Now I know how you feel. Um, no, yeah, they, I'm like two years younger than you, man. So it's all good. <laughs> um, they, um, they definitely didn't know. It was one of those things where you're at a venue, um, just, you know, hanging out with random people. And they were just good vibes so they just wanted to hang out with us and obviously you know the hip-hop show stereotype uh cam was like probably two hours late um so we had a lot of time to bond uh with the people around us but uh, yeah i specifically remember uh this kid just turning to me at least three times during the show being like you must love this right now this is a trip down memory lane and i'm like yes Please just stop talking. I'm trying to record these videos so I can watch them later when I go home at 11 p.m. Um, well, you've actually like I think you've you've done multiple interviews with Cameron, right? Because I feel like there was one piece like a few years back that was in GQ. I want to say. Yeah, I've interviewed Cam twice, and the first time was fun because I really want. I think he was promoting a, a sneaker release at the time. Uh, but I really just wanted to find any reason to interview him because that was, I don't even remember. He took a random photo with Greg Popovich. Okay. And I just wanted to ask him about it. He didn't really give me a great answer. Like it was just pure cam talking about how uh, pop is a legend, but he ran into pop. Like he saw pop on the street, I think in New York, cause the Spurs were there and he just like told his boy to pull over and jumped out of his car and took a selfie with pop, uh, <laughs> which has always been one of my favorite photos of all time. Yeah, man, no doubt. Um, and I, I remember, so there was like a more recent interview that you did with him where, uh, much to my delight, he was talking about his newfound love of tennis. So That's right, because he was watching, who was he watching? Someone was doing IG stories. Yeah, I think he was watching or, or like he the, was doing... the Osaka-Coco golf match from the U.S. Open last right. year. Right. Um, yeah, I just remember him talking about... Uh, about like how much he respected tennis players and how much he was getting into the sport because, um, cause it was just like mono mono and 
you know, there's no timeouts and you have to figure everything out for yourself. You like compared it to boxing, um, which, you know, I found to be a pretty trenchant insight. Yeah. Pusha T is a huge tennis fan too, by the way. Is he? Yeah. Uh, look up Pusha T tennis. Um, there's definitely been articles where he's talked about this. And um, I guess we know which side you're taking in the Drake <laughs> Pusha T uh, beef, but no need to get into that. Um, finally, um, you know, for these rewatches, um, instead of stealing Will Lose format, um, I'm finally going to try to come up with my own. So uh, in honor of my love of Uncut Gems and Howard Ratner, I'm doing the Howard Ratner Memorial $155,000 parlay for the Sixers Raptors game. Uh, Howard would have parlayed Rondé Hollis Jefferson over <laughs> six and a half rebounds, Joel Embiid under 19 and a half points, and Raptors. Uh, plus one and a half, uh, they were able to pull it out. Um, so, you know, Howard's watching this game and Pascal gets uh, the three-point play. The, the game is over. Uh, ben Simmons is heaving that three. Pascal's going in for that breakaway dunk and then he gets shot and dies. And that's how the alternate Uncut Gems ends. Okay. And that's the whole segment or do I have to add something now? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, that was uh, just purely for me. That is a, a pure self-indulgent um segment the only thing i need from you is did you decide on your conference finals meal yet um yeah i mean this i guess was gonna make me sound really bougie but um probably uh my favorite meal if i'm ever you know in the mood to really splurge is black cod just like a ridiculously tasty buttery fish um especially with like a miso sauce uh, that shit's delicious. So, wow! I love the addition of the miso sauce. This is very specific. It has um, to be the miso and... sauce. It's just like for whatever reason, you like that's what brings out the flavor of the of the black cod is the miso sauce. Like every anywhere you see it in a restaurant, that's what they will serve it with. So one more thing about that Sixers game. This was like probably I think definitely actually my most viral tweet ever was. Um, when oh, I like, yes. I, I come. Oh yes, I completely forgot about this. Okay, you tell the story. So, basically, like when we go to games, like we like, I, I sit up in the media gondola with you know like the other second tier media members. <laughs> but for this particular game, um, I like uh, my family had tickets, so like I went and sat with them, and. After the game, like the basically, there's like an elevator that goes down from the media gondola that spits you out in like the tunnel, and it's like a long walk to get from where that elevator spits you out um, to like the locker rooms. After, like, I'm sitting up there with my family, and I'm basically like leaving. I, I like I left just before uh, like the final play. I went like I went over to the elevator. I watched like the Siakam breakaway dunk at the buzzer on the TV screen and then headed straight down. Cause I wanted to make sure uh, I didn't miss Brett Brown's like uh, post-game coach availability, but it's a different elevator. Like one I'm not used to taking. And this one spits me out like right at the mouth of the Raptors locker room. And as soon as I get down there, I walk out and like a security guard is standing there telling me to wait. And Masai is just like standing in front of the Raptors locker room and all the players are coming in. And as each one comes passing by, Masai just yells, fuck him, fuck him, fuck him, fuck every single player. He dapped them up and said, fuck him. And then like Lowry, who was uh, in street clothes, was like the last guy to come. And like Masai grabs Lowry, like puts his arm around him and is like, man, I hate those guys. Um, 
and then so finally they let me pass and like i so i tweeted about what i had seen which is like you know the only time probably that i've ever gotten anything resembling a scoop that nobody else had and the tweet kind of starts to blow up uh and our friend Blake Murphy kind of like he saw it and he warned me. He's like, yeah, so like I have tweeted stuff that I've seen back there before and kind of got in trouble with Raptors PR, had to take the tweet down. So just like be advised that you might get in shit. So I'm like stressing out. Like I, I remember asking you, like if you thought I should take the tweet down. <laughs> First of all, Joel Fon, Joel Fon, if you ever need to ask someone about whether they should take a tweet down, I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> Why is that? Because I'll always tell you to keep it up. <laughs> Just leave it. I think I did tell you that, you know, as long as it doesn't bother you, like if it's really bothering you, then it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, um, I was just like, cause... I didn't really get to enjoy it because it was kind of blowing up. And normally that would be cause for great excitement on my part. But <laughs> it was really just causing me more and more stress because like the more retweets I got, the more worried I was that I was going to get in trouble. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way, man. Like, I think things that happen um, kind of backstage, um, kind of in the behind the scenes area, obviously every reporter, uh, we use our discretion. Um, you know, obviously sometimes there are kind of like personal interactions that I think we never cross the lines on. But something like that, I feel like uh, was fair game. And I'll put it this way. I mean, if it was an ESPN writer who tweeted that, they wouldn't get in trouble. Right. Um Anyway, so yeah, obviously I ended up keeping the tweet up, but like there's all these people responding, asking me like, is this real? Did this actually happen? And I just, I just, you were like, I just, did everyone just, did everyone just think I was a parody account all along? Yeah. Well, I just didn't respond to anybody because I didn't want to like, um, you know, I was already worried about getting in trouble. So I figured if I was like, oh yeah, it definitely happened. I was there. Then I would just be further implicating myself. So I just didn't say anything, like didn't respond to anybody and just let people oh, make of it what they would. That's amazing. And my bad too, uh, for completely forgetting that. Cause that was, uh, an all time tweet and moment that you captured. And that really just captures the essence of Masai's competitiveness, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was just like, it, it was it was cool to see that and see like how fired up he was um even though it was like a you know regular season game like less than 20 games into the season one that uh in theory shouldn't have meant all that much but like you could tell how much it meant to him so that was a cool moment to see yeah i, I don't think this is that deep of an observation but i think one of the things that really draws the fan base to Masai is that he clearly shows and has shown publicly that he cares as much about this team and these games as the fans do and you rarely see that connection. Um, I mean, give me a same uh, moment from Sam Hinkie. Um, I dare you. Just name one. Um, so, Joe Alfon, I really appreciate you coming on. And I'll look forward to your uh, next Medium essay uh, titled, How I Had the Joy of a Viral Tweet Robbed from <laughs> Yes, please look out for that. Uh, thanks for having me on, man. I think you you may have successfully gotten me excited about basketball coming back. It was really nice to chat about ball again. Yeah, honestly, man, I'm in a good mood because I'm doing these basketball chats. So we'll talk soon, Wolfon. Thanks, man. See you later.